You're listening to Nutrition Matters Podcast with Paige Smathers, Registered Dietitian Nutritionist. Hi everyone, it's Paige Smathers. Thanks so much for being here. Nutrition Matters Podcast explores what really matters in nutrition and health with a sensitive and realistic approach. To help support the podcast, please consider making a donation at positive-nutrition.com slash podcast. If you find this episode interesting, engaging, or helpful in your life, please consider donating, sharing with friends and family, and leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, whatever podcast app you use to listen to this podcast. You can leave a review about this podcast straight from your podcast app. Search Nutrition Matters Podcast, click Reviews, and then write a review. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook if you'd like to have a little more food for thought. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Nutrition Matters Podcast. My name is Paige, and I'm your host. And today I'm speaking with Migret Fletcher, who is a registered dietitian and a certified diabetes educator who has worked in diabetes care since 1995. She's written a few books, and she talks about them during the podcast episode. And she has this really unique expertise where her uh, passions for mindfulness and for meditation kind of are intersecting with diabetes care. And it's such an important conversation to have. And what we do in this episode is we talk about how mindfulness can totally benefit your health, whether you have diabetes or you don't, you're going to want to listen. And then um, we kind of put to rest some of the most common misconceptions people have about diabetes and about maybe a compassionate um, approach to health. So we we talk about both all of those things and kind of help you understand where the misconceptions lie and really clarify what this whole mindfulness thing is about. Um, I think you're going to really enjoy this. She's a fabulous speaker and she has so many great things to share. So thanks so much for joining me for this episode. So I also want to just mention I am making a really concerted effort to be more uh, present and focused in the Facebook group we have about the podcast. So if you're interested in joining that group, it's a couple hundred of us there right now. Um, It'd be awesome to have more people so that we can discuss and support each discuss things and support each other through this process of trying to create a healthy relationship with food. So that is Nutrition Matters Podcast Community on Facebook. Thank you to all of those of you who have so graciously left a review for the podcast. It's really appreciated. If you haven't had time to do that yet, if you're you're able and willing, we would really appreciate just a quick review on iTunes makes a big difference for us. And then also, um, if you're local to Salt Lake City, uh, my new dietitian that I've hired, Katie. We have a whole episode devoted to her um, called Is Food Medicine. She is taking on new clients uh, both in person and virtually, so check that out. See if uh, her and her expertise might be a good fit for for you. Go to positive-nutrition.com, click on make an appointment, and um, you can book an appointment with Katie or with myself. 
And as always, we're just so glad you're here. And I'm always just so excited to be able to share episodes and conversations that I've had with fabulous people. I feel really lucky and grateful to be able to do this work and I'm grateful for all of you who support it through um, kind messages and through reviews or even donations. All of that stuff is really, really genuinely appreciated. So before we get into this podcast, I want to also mention... We talk about mindfulness, and at one point I kind of define what this is a little bit, and we talk about its it, how it fits into the broad picture of intuitive eating and of health at every size and some of the other stuff we talk about on this podcast. But right before we get into it, I just want to make sure everyone listening knows, for the, for the intents and purposes of this podcast episode, you can kind of lump a lot of those terms in together. They all fit together in the big picture of a compassionate approach to health and creating a healthy relationship with food and your body. So just wanted to clar- clarify that before we get in. And then I really, really hope you enjoy this podcast episode about diabetes and how you really can practice di- uh, mindful eating with a diabetes diagnosis. I'd encourage you to share this with anyone in your life who maybe has diabetes or if you uh, has questions about it, I think this could be really helpful for providers and patients alike. So with that, uh, let's get into the episode and I sincerely hope you enjoy it. Migrit, welcome to Nutrition Matters Podcast. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome and really thank you so much for giving us your time. Let's just take a minute and introduce you and your work to my audience really quickly, and then we'll dive into um, talking about this really important topic that we have planned for the day. Um, So I'm a registered dietitian, diabetes educator, and um, about two decades ago, I decided to really have a formal meditation practice. So I dabbled in meditation like a lot of people do, and I decided to really commit to that practice. And as I committed to meditating and being in the present moment, I really noticed that the concepts and the things that I was learning about myself as I learned how to really listen, it it transformed me and it transformed my relationship with food. Now, keep in mind, I was a dietitian at the time that I started doing this, um, but I, I really found places where the compassion and the embracing of the present moment, it really wasn't something I had ever thought to do with food and eating. And that experience kind of opened my eyes to a different way of approaching nutrition. And I I would talk to my clients about it and they'd say, this is really helpful. I love this. I, I love talking with you. You're very different than other healthcare professionals. And as I thought about what they said, and as I worked with them, um, I decided maybe I should write down these little tools and techniques that, that I'm using. And I started writing some down. And I, at the time, the internet was just kind of emerging. And I did a search and I found this gentleman, his name is, is Fred Burgraff. And he had kind of had the same experience that I had. He had written it all down as well. And I read his work and I said, you know, Fred, this would be great. We could adapt this for healthcare providers. And I I think it would be really well received. He said, oh, okay, let's do it. So we worked on 
this first book that I wrote with Fred called Discover Mindful Eating. And it was handouts. Fred and I both have a, a master's degree in, in education. And the Discover Mindful Eating book, which I wrote with, with Fred, really launched me in a very different direction as far as a dietitian goes. Um, and it really kind of brought me to the desire to bring mindfulness and mindful eating fully into my professional practice. And then, you know, we can go on about how it how it led to other opportunities as well. Um, I was a dietitian and a diabetes educator at the time. So as you can see, mindfulness, nutrition, diabetes, they all kind of converged for me. This is a topic that I think is so important. And this is why I wanted to have you on was just, you found this beautiful way to marry the diabetes education world with this idea of mindfulness and mindful eating. And I think it's such an important intersection as we'll dive into and talk about the nuances. But just from a kind of zoomed out perspective, a lot of people who have, let's say, diabetes as a health concern or other health concerns going on, they might hear all the rhetoric about um, intuitive eating or mindfulness or um, health at every size, those types of things. And they might think, okay, well, that's great for that person, but that's not for me because I have this health concern that really warrants, um, you know, this, this other approach. And that, that approach isn't for me. The mindfulness thing isn't for me. Would you, mm. would you say that that resonates with your experience? Well, I think that, you know, kind of that other approach, and if we could put it in broad terms, Paige, is restrictive eating. So one approach is being present with our food, which would be mindfulness-based. And then the opposite of that would be restrictive eating. Now, restrictive eating is how it's a fear-based, can't-have approach to food and eating. And when we think about how the brain works, the brain is very alert to fear. So right away, when somebody says, you know, you have diabetes, it's going to kill you, um, that, that would be a lot of fear. And so if somebody said, but if you ate this way, and you didn't eat this, and you cut out those, and you weren't, you were never to have that again, you, you would be healthy. Well, there, that would really address a lot of fears. First of all, it would give us assurance that this scary diagnosis, this scary condition could go away. And I am afraid as an individual, so I would want to do whatever I could to decrease my fear and also to preserve my life. So I think from a marketing perspective, fear is how people market change. But when we look at the studies, and there are a lot of studies, and these are huge, very well-funded studies, there's really no evidence that restrictive eating, that promoting weight loss, A, is effective, and B, is sustainable. So when we talk about restrictive eating with the intention to lose weight, we're lacking evidence. And when I say evidence, I mean long-term applicable to somebody who is 45 or 75. Throughout our lifespan, can people uh, restrict their intake long enough to have it have an impact on their health? 
And, and we're really, there is just a dearth of evidence to say, yeah, that's reasonable. And if we look at the science, and so the look ahead trial, huge, well-designed trial, it was stopped early because it was ineffective. And the research behind that showed that only 3.6% of people in the most intensive lifestyle intervention were able to reverse diabetes. So if we think about that, that's we'll, we'll round up to 4%, 96% of people in the most heavily, you know, supported, intensive lifestyle change program failed. This study, uh, the look ahead trial, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, it, it did have some positive results and that's in the short term. But when we talk about diabetes, does diet prevent diabetes? No, it's a chronic illness. It doesn't cure it. Um, and that is something that's really hard for people. They say, well, I heard you could reverse diabetes or I heard I could cure diabetes. And I go back to the marketing and I go, well, would you buy it if somebody said you couldn't cure it? Like, buy my product, it really won't work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not exactly a good marketing technique. <laughs> not so much. Yeah. So what they do is they, is they really layer on the fear. So they really layer on the fear and they say, you know, you have to do this. Your life is in jeopardy. And, and again, that's, it's effective marketing, but is it accurate? And, right. and that's really, you know, kind of one of the things that, that I try to talk about. As a diabetes educator, do I believe that lifestyle change is important? A hundred percent. I do believe lifestyle change is important. As a dietitian, do I believe that nutrition is important? A hundred percent. I believe that nutrition is very important. As a dietitian, do I feel um, that eating healthful foods promotes health? I do, a hundred percent. Do I believe in in movement and moving our body? Uh, I do, a hundred percent. So how, if I've said all of these things that we typically associate with dieting, and I say, I agree with those, why am I so anti-dieting? Why am I so anti-restrictive eating? And this is, I think, you know, as we dig into this podcast, that's really the topic I'd like to clarify really what the nuance is, what the message shift is. Okay, perfect. And let me let me do a little bit of uh, groundwork and then let's move into that. So one thing that I just wanted to say from a broad perspective and kind of clarify is I'm always sensitive that there might be someone who's new to uh, the the conversations, the types of conversations that we have on this podcast. And it can be kind of confusing when people throw around intuitive eating and mindful eating and f- like maybe just, will you just take a minute to kind of clarify, is there a difference if that's meaningful in, in context of what we'll be talking about today? Um, how do you want to kind of define some basic terms so that people listening feel like they're they're on the same page with us? Hmm. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so I, I come from the school that the present moment is not new. So I always believe that mindfulness, which is 
being aware of the present moment came first. And then we start turning around saying, how could I use mindfulness? So when we think about mindfulness, uh, I've defined mindfulness as having, you know, kind of, it's uh, being aware in the present moment. And so it's attention and intention. So my attention is tuned into what I'm doing and my intention is directed towards compassionate self-care, self-kindness, uh, and that, you know, kind of an ethical, compassionate um, action towards myself and others. So my attention is focused in on the present moment and my intention is rooted in kindness. So that's mindfulness, and, and if we apply that with mindful eating, we would say my attention is towards my food and eating, my body sensations while I'm eating, and my intention is to be kind to my body and select foods that are kind to my body and that would benefit my body. So that would be my, my definition of mindfulness and then my subtle definition of mindful eating. Okay, great. And I, my personal opinion is for the intents and purposes of this podcast episode, because we will be centering our conversation around mindfulness, because that's really where your expertise lie. But I, just for the average layperson listener, um, all of the things that are fall under the umbrella of mindful eating, I think are also definitely still within the realm of intuitive eating, how that every size, all of these things can kind of go together and maybe aren't interchangeable terms, but at least are on the same wavelength. Um, I just wanted to clarify that just if anyone was listening and wasn't sure where that fit into the big picture. Right. Cause I agree, you know, Paige, I think all of those things really talk about, kindness they talk about being embodied or being in our bodies trying to check in and being attuned with our eating so those are the kinds of things we're talking about um and like you said the 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 scope the scope of this is they're all trying to move us away from restriction and more towards self-care Okay, and that's the other thing I wanted to really quickly hit on before we dive into the topic. So we we talked a little bit in the beginning, you were mentioning the idea of restrictive eating. And I think that there's a tiny bit of nuance that I just want to express here because I want, I really want this to feel as inclusive as possible for people. And you also did a beautiful job of talking about intentions and how important that is in the practice of mindfulness and just in general, good quality, healthy self-care. We want to be thinking about our intentions. So I'm going to put this out there and then I want to hear your thoughts. So I think that restrictive eating, how we're meaning it when we say that is you know, putting yourself on a certain diet that feels restrictive, you feel deprived, and it can lead to some of these cycles of, or the pendulum swing of restriction, and then binging, and then restriction. And maybe it's not always that extreme for everybody, but a lot of people will relate to that cycle of feeling kind of um, chaotic and out of control with with all of the restriction. But I also want to make the point that there are legitimate needs for avoiding a certain food. And um, a lot of times people who have various conditions will kind of feel left out of the conversations about mindfulness or health at every size or um, self-care because 
there are legitimate things that need to happen sometimes for health reasons or for an allergy or whatever it might be. So I think where this comes down to for me is what's, what is the intention behind the restriction? Is it quality, good, grounded, kind self-care? Or is it rooted in punishment and, and um, deprivation and things along those lines? What else would you add? Oh, I, I love how you phrase that. Um, it's all, it's not the, the black and white one or the other. It's on a continuum. And so most of the time our intentions are far from pure. And so I think that that's really what we start looking at. So I avoid certain foods for lots of reasons. I'm sure you avoid certain foods for lots of reasons. It could be that you just don't like the squeak of a mushroom when you eat it. That would be for myself. I don't like how mushrooms squeak when I bite into them. I avoid that because I find that to be inherently unpleasant to me. I don't mind the flavor. I just don't like the texture of them. So that's my picadillo. You know, fine. Now, restraint is when I look at something that I love and I think, oh, Oh, I love eating that. That tastes so good. It's so yummy. But I know that if I eat too much, it won't be yummy. It won't feel good in my body. So I use restraint, meaning that I eat an amount, but I don't overeat that amount. I think restraint is just turning around saying, yeah, I could get carried away here. And that's normal. That's normal. It's applying, you know, kind of the neuroscience would be it's applying the break, not letting our desires take a sweep us away uh, yeah and I love that you said I love that mo- that model of self-talk that you just gave right there where you said oh I know what this is I know that I you know sometimes want to eat more than feels good of this food and that's normal but I'm going to practice a little bit of restraint here I think that that kind of I wanted to start with some of that groundwork because I think Sometimes when people are listening to these conversations, they can feel like we're saying health doesn't matter or just eat whatever, just be present. You know, so I think it's just really mm-hmm. important to kind of help people understand what we mean and what our goals are. I think our goals are the same. I think we want to promote health and well-being. And I think that when, at least in my own experience, we see far better outcomes when we're coming from this place of kindness and compassion and presence rather than um, so much on the other end of the spectrum that I see where where people are rigid and perfectionist thinking and punishing their body and things like that. And that's just, I, I think we just see better health outcomes and better mental health outcomes when we approach things that way. Yes. And so when the motivation is internal, and it's an internalized motivation, I want to care for my body, you are going to see better outcomes than I have to care for my body or being told you should care for your body. So when it's external, somebody is imposing it upon you, you're going to see worse outcomes because it's not sustainable. And at a certain point, I think our inner teenager comes back out and says, I don't really like being told what to do. Oh, yeah, that's so true. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and my, even though I'm in my 50s, my inner teenager is alive and well. 
That's good to know. <laughs> you never get rid of that inner teenager, huh? <laughs> no, I think we all have a, a bit of feistiness within us. Which is a good thing, right? Helps us get stuff done <laughs> and not, so, not take people's BS, maybe. Yeah, so Stephen Andrews, he's, a, he's a, um, a social worker up in Maine, and he's one of the teachers that I worked with. He has a great quote, and I'd love to share it. Please do. He said, people don't resist change people resist being changed. I like that. Oh, that that resonates so much with my lived experience as trying to, you know, promote change or promote mm. behavior change in the work that I do. It's mm. all about helping people figure that out on their own, don't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I share that quote. I actually have a little caterpillar and a butterfly picture of a caterpillar and a butterfly. We're always changing. And so this idea of I don't want to change, it's not accurate. You change all the time and you're seeking change all the time. What we're resisting and what we're spending a lot of our energy on is having people not change us. We get to drive the bus. We get to be in charge of our change, not not anyone else. Oh, that's such a good point. I love that. Thanks for sharing that. Mm. So tell me about, about how you got involved in doing diabetes education and diabetes work. Mm. So I my story is one of change. Um, I used to work as a psychiatric dietitian in an eating disorder uh, facility, and I, I really enjoyed that work. I worked with my patients for three to four months, and we ate together, and we just really had a great relationship. And then as insurance changed, as the world changed, my three to four months was dwindled down to three to four days. And if you have ever struggled or you know of anyone who's struggling with emotions around food and eating, we really know that three to four days working with somebody, it's just not enough time. Absolutely. That's not very much time at all. It's really not. And so I had to say, do I want to keep working with people who are, you know, they still have eating disorders, but I'm working in a very acute um, you know, kind of enforcing and keeping them alive through, um, we call it hyperalimentation, but through IVs, or did I want to find a new job? And so I think you figured out, I picked answer B. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so I said, Hey, what's a job where I could have a relationship with my patients for a long time? And so I decided to go into diabetes and um, I've never looked back. I've loved every minute of working as a diabetes educator, and it's a great job. And if anyone's a health professional and they want to be a diabetes educator, shoot me an email because I'm, I'm recruiting. Love it. <laughs> so talk about, and we've already in the beginning talked a little bit about your thoughts on that weight normative approach to diabetes care, but let's just paint the picture for people. What's kind of the typical approach to diabetes and just in, in case they don't know? And, and then let's, let's talk about kind of where you're trying to paint the picture and where you're trying to blaze or where you are blazing this trail of a different approach. Right, right. So whenever we're diagnosed and whether 
were diagnosed with prediabetes, which would be that place where our blood sugars aren't really normal, but we're not actually having diabetes. And that can happen up to 12 years before the diagnosis of diabetes. Um, and a lot of times people will come in and they'll say, well, I had gestational diabetes and I think I'm at risk. I know I'm at risk for developing diabetes. So those individuals, whether it's you know a, a risk factor for diabetes or people with prediabetes or people with diabetes, whenever you walk through the door, you are who you are. At whatever weight you're at, and so without going into trying to change or manipulate your size, there is a lot that we can do to help you prevent, decrease insulin resistance. So right there. So the insulin resistance, that's the hallmark of um, prediabetes. It's, it's the big thing. And insulin resistance has been um, described and oversimplified to the point that it's no longer accurate. So what is insulin resistance? And, and this is kind of an approach that I take, and there's different ways, um, but I always think about insulin and what insulin does. So insulin is a hormone that moves glucose, which would be the food that you eat. So if you ate a piece of bread or you ate a piece of fruit, the fruit and the bread do not flow through your bloodstream. Digestion breaks the fruit into glucose. The digestion process will break down the bread into glucose. If we put maybe uh, some peanut butter on the apple, it would take the peanut butter and break it into amino acids. It would break it into fatty acids. If we uh, put some ham or if we put some cheese on the bread, it would, again, break that into fatty acids and amino acids. So what floats in our bloodstream is glucose, amino acids, or fatty acids. And we need insulin to move that nutrient into the cell. And so when we understand, oh, insulin's job is to nourish the cell, I have a condition where my insulin, for some reason, isn't doing that. It's not actually moving nutrition from the bloodstream into the cell. And the analogy I use, it's almost like the insulin is dull, like a knife. It's like a dull knife. It's, it's not working. Um, so we want to think about ways we could sharpen that knife to make the knife more effective. How could I, how could I get that knife to work better? It's a fine knife. Um, it's just dull. And that's really where mindfulness comes in, because we know that when we're stressed, we have a lot of behaviors that oftentimes increase insulin resistance, and we have a lot of stress response hormones and um, hormones that float through our bloodstream that make insulin resistance worse. And stress also has a huge impact on our sleep cycle. And there's an enormous amount of evidence to say, if you're tired, you're less likely to go move your body and, and choose foods that, that take time to prepare or that are particularly nourishing because you're tired. You're saying, oh, I'm really tired. I'll just grab something. 
And so we fall into habitual patterns of thinking and acting that actually make insulin resistance worse. And so that to me is why mindful eating is so helpful is to turn around and say, wait a second, let's sharpen that knife by reducing stress. Let's sharpen that knife by looking at the big picture and saying, this didn't come out of nowhere. This came from lots of lots of conditions are making my insulin knife dull. And what are the ways that I could sharpen my knife? I love that. That's such a probably different perspective than than other people might have about mindful eating. They might think, okay, that's where I eat without distractions. <laughs> um, and, and where that, that might be a good element of it. It's also talking more holistically about, yeah, your insulin will be affected, not just by food, but also just by life and what's going on for you. So thinking about how a mindfulness practice will positively affect your ability to uh, manage and deal and cope with stress in your life and to be able to make choices that are ultimately in your best interest with sleep and with food and with exercise and, and all that stuff. It's just, I think that that's a really good kind of way of looking at the power of mindfulness when it comes to diabetes specifically also and it's important here to clarify if anyone's listening listening who has type 1 diabetes we're really more talking about type 2 diabetes um, but I'm but there all are also implications for mindful mindful eating and mindfulness practice with you know type 1 or gestational diabetes or really any person anywhere at health-wise yes I would agree and I have a number of individuals with type one that turn around and say, you know, some of what you're saying really is helping me uh, kind of take care of myself. And I think it goes back to that intention. So as they start looking at why am I making these choices? Oh, it's to take care of my body. And I understand that my body doesn't make insulin. That would be type one. And, and I still want to care for it, even though it's not functioning optimally. I, through deliberate acts, can really help it function better. And as a result of those deliberate acts, I feel better. I feel better. Totally true. I love that. Thanks for uh, going through that with us. So the just to kind of summarize what where we've gone so far. So the typical approach to especially type 2 diabetes is, you know, someone gets... Uh, Gets, goes in for their physical and their doctor draws some labs and maybe there's reason to check um, a hemoglobin A1C. And let's say the, the number comes back and it's, it's within, it meets criteria for diagnosing type 2 diabetes. What's the typical advice someone in that situation gets from their medical provider? Mm. Well, I think it really depends on your medical provider. I'm very fortunate. I, I work in an embedded healthcare system, which means that I work with um, it's 16 different providers and they would say, oh, your blood sugars are elevated. I'm going to have you go see one of our educators. And we would coach people through, you know, what does this mean uh, and what are the options that would work for you? And we would write those down and say, so this is how you're going to manage your diabetes um, between 
when you see the, when you see the doctor and, and, you know, kind of a nice way of thinking about it is it's your plan. So what's your plan? We develop a plan. And I think that that to me, that system and that approach is optimal. A lot of people though, aren't actually having a time to meet with somebody and talk about a plan and how to develop a plan. And I think that that leads them to be vulnerable to marketing and to the comments of well-intending friends or an internet search, you know, possibly the worst thing in the world, um, because then we're exposed to this fear. So people that love us, love us, and they're afraid. And so they have a tendency to share with us more of the extreme thinking, more of those, well, you can't have any sweets or you're not allowed to eat anything delicious. And those kinds of comments, though, they might have the intention of being well intending. They're often very harmful and very, very triggering. If we do an internet search, we might get a lot of confusing misinformation that gets generated as well. So I think that meeting with somebody and really coming up with a plan and saying, what does this diagnosis mean? What, you know, kind of what should I do with this? To me is the, is the best approach. And that will have you have a chance to have individual questions answered. So people will say things like, well, does this mean I can't eat white bread? Does this mean I can never have birthday cake? I'm like, no, it doesn't mean any of that. It means that we're going to develop a plan, food, you know, activity, if you need medication, we're going to figure out what labs are going to need to happen. And then we're going to kind of put that all together and say, so this is your plan. Now that is working with me and people will work with me up to 13 hours um, to get that plan established. So it's, it's a, it's a commitment to really turn around and say, yeah, diabetes is a serious disease. Pre-diabetes is serious. I want to take it seriously. When they're diagnosed, are not offered that support. And so they kind of forge a path on their own. And sometimes that path is terrific, but more times than not, that path is cumbersome. It's fear-based. It feels very uphill. And they feel really alone and isolated and blamed. I caused this. Not true. But that is the messaging that comes from the media is there's a lot of that there's a lot of guilt, huge amount of guilt. Mm -hmm. And guilt dulls the insulin knife. And why does it dull the insulin knife? Because when I feel guilty, I am needing to cope with this very heavy emotion. How do I cope with it? It's not uncommon to turn to food. It's not uncommon for me to not exercise and to engage in acts of maybe self-indulgence versus self-care because I feel blamed. And diabetes, you didn't cause diabetes. Nobody turned around and said, oh, I'll go like give myself diabetes today. You know, no one signed up for this. Yeah, that's such a good point. And just to reiterate, like the the kind of typical uh response people get is okay you you have a diagnosis of diabetes so um make sure you exercise more and eat less that's kind of a very a very typical response that that people might get from a medical provider or or from an internet search so i think or it's the back of a cereal box I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's, or it's anywhere like, yeah that's true it's so ubiquitous i mean it's like a fortune cookie what the heck does that mean 
Exactly. What does that mean? It has absolutely positively no meaning. We feel good saying it. I told him what to do, eat less and exercise more, and everything will be good. Lose 10 pounds. You know? Yeah, that's another I, one. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know what that means anymore. And so it's just, it's so, it's so uh, in the ethos. It's like the air we breathe. It's so omnipresent that it just doesn't make sense. And so what happens is this ambiguous, confusing messaging, we get it gets latched onto and somebody says, well, I'll teach you how to eat less and exercise more, you know, follow my program. And their program is not tailored towards you. And their program talks about uh, you restricting your intake versus saying, what do I want to change in my diet? What would work for me? So they're saying, you know, eat this for breakfast, eat this for lunch, eat this for dinner, and you'll be better. And it's like, you could do that for a day, maybe a week, if you're super motivated, two weeks. But after two weeks of following somebody else's diet, you're like, I don't eat these foods. I don't like these foods. Exactly. And and so you're going to be in the market for another diet, which is exactly part of the marketing strategy. Oh, well, give me 1995 and you can try this diet or, you know, do this. And so it just perpetuates itself. And that's why the dieting industry is a, it's a billion, it's like a $40 billion industry. And people with diabetes are so vulnerable to the messaging. And really, it's not sustainable. Exactly. And again, like the goals, the goals that you and I both share uh, that we have for our clients is we're trying to help them work with their body rather than work against it. And I think that that message is particularly difficult for someone who feels like maybe their bodies betrayed them. And that's why they have this diagnosis. Or maybe there's a little bit of a repair in the in the their relationship with their body that needs to happen in order for them to tap into that trust and compassion because often there's a lot of stuff to deal with just from the perspective of I feel guilty I feel responsible I feel ashamed um and yeah there's there's so much to this conversation about diabetes that I think is fascinating uh from a social perspective, from a health perspective, mental health, um, self-care. There's just so many different facets of this particular diagnosis that I think is really fascinating, has lots of implications on how we care for ourselves. It does. And you said something, and I'd like to kind of drill down a little bit on something you just said, which I think is really relevant. So when people talk about improving their health, the default is weight loss. So that is a really important paradigm to recognize. Oh, I want to get healthy, I'll lose weight. And there is not, that's not connected. Health and weight loss are not connected. That's a disconnect there. So weight loss is an outcome and health is a behavior. It's an action. How do I get healthy? I have to do something. What are the behaviors that promote health? Not What's the outcome? What's the behaviors? So being in the present moment, you can't do weight loss in your seat. 
But you can do what right now in this moment? Well, I could eat and be more aware of what I'm eating. I could really try to taste the food. I could really, in this very moment, I could notice my hunger. I could notice my fullness. I could really sit down in this very moment. I could notice what am I craving? What would really feel nourishing in my body? You know, I could really spend some time and be with what is present. And that is a behavior that we practice, we start saying, oh yeah, I think that would probably help me if I really said, am am I hungry? Am I hungry? Oh, I am. How hungry am I? That one little question, that little bit of curiosity changes everything about food and eating. And it's not restrictive. It's saying, I want to nourish my body. I want to put into my body food in an amount that feels good in my body in an amount that's not not too much but also like in an amount that's not too little exactly and that will change because if I exercise that day or if I wasn't feeling well there's lots of reasons why I would eat more one day or why I would eat less the next and so that's part of that trust that you said and a lot of times because we have been marinating in this diet culture because the only time we think about eating healthy is restriction there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen for many people with diabetes they just really don't know what healthy eating looks like when you're not trying to lose weight and i go i know it's confusing isn't it so we spend for sure that's a really important point there, yeah. there. I just want to highlight that there can be such a, a feeling of confusion when your whole paradigm toward health has always been health equals weight loss or weight loss equals health. And when someone comes in and says, hey, those two things are not the same, that can be really confusing. And I think that's actually part of why the messaging of intuitive eating or health at every size can be confusing because it feels like you're saying, well, if I'm not pursuing weight loss then you're saying that I, I'm not eating healthy. And so how could a dietitian be saying that? So do you, want to clear, do you want to clear that one up for a minute? Sure. So when we talk about health does not um, equal weight loss, you know, I think that that is a very, very important concept. So, you know, the, the very first thing I would say is, is that health is complex. Um, it isn't a single thing. So that's the very first step I want to say. So health, um, when we eat a healthy diet, it's a diet that has variety, it has moderation, it has, um, you know, um, flexibility. It is a diet that nourishes the body and nurtures the body. And nourishes the body, yeah, it's got fruits and fiber and vegetables and a variety of food. And it nurtures the body. It tastes good. It's satisfying. It feels good. Those are the kinds of things that we want to include. It's not calorie deprived. It's calorie balanced. So when my energy level increases, my calories increase. When my energy you know, needs decrease, my calories decrease. And if I listen to the cues my body gives me, it will guide me to right. make those macro or micro adjustments to my diet. You don't have to micromanage that. You really don't because you could say, oh, am I hungry? Oh, I am. Well, how hungry am I? How much do I need to eat in order to fill this current experience? And what would taste good? And 
what would fuel my body and feed my body and you know what would really nourish me and it's it's a it's a conversation and it's a curious curious conversation and that that's such a great point i just want to highlight really quickly that circling back to that concept of why mindfulness can be a really powerful tool to practice with diabetes specifically is what you just said the, those questions you just talked about that you uh like modeling that self-talk that's what you can start asking yourself when you create a little bit of a gap between stimulus and response and you just pause and you tr- and you ask yourself questions rather than just you know that habitual reactivity that we talk about in mindfulness so the questions of how hungry am i what would taste good? What would nourish my body right now? What do I feel like I, I need to eat to have the energy that I need to, to do live the life I want to live today or in this moment? I think those are all questions we don't really ask ourselves when we don't take a minute to kind of take a step back and consider, uh, consider those things. Exactly. So in the book that I wrote with Dr. Michelle May, Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat with Diabetes, she has a nice way of kind of breaking that down. So when we think about reacting, if you look at that word, it's your reacting out the same response. So that's why we get into habitual patterns of acting and thinking, because when we react, we're reacting out the same response. We're doing what we've always done. And so when we put that pause in, we are pausing to turn and say, did my last attempt fix the problem? Did it work? I know it's familiar. I know this is how I typically respond, but did it work? Was it effective? And that is another reason why mindfulness and mindful eating are so powerful because it's breaking out of reacting the same choice and it's turning around saying, well, you know, I chose this and did satisfy me or no, or did not work or what would work better? What would be kinder? Perfect. So I am going to ask you a a question that I get a lot and I'd be really interested to see how you would respond to this. So I'm, I'm imagining someone listening, thinking, okay, this is great. I'm totally on board with the concepts of mindfulness and how powerful it could be in my relationship with food, especially given my diagnosis of diabetes, and they're all on board intellectually. But I I can imagine that someone might be thinking, but for me, in my case, I need to lose weight first. And then maybe once I've lost the weight that my doctors told me I need to lose to manage my diabetes, then I will start working on mindful eating or um, all of this, like being kind to yourself and compassion stuff. Like I'll do that later, but for now I'll just go on a fad diet. Mm, mm. Yeah. So there's a lot of different directions I could take. And the first one is um, be kind now. So uh, when we think about our choices and we have a choice, Um, And a lot of people say, well, I really want to be right versus kind. And I say, but if you're kind, you're always right. You know, you can be right and unkind. And there's a lot of consequences that come from that. But when you're kind, you're always right. No one's ever going to fault you for being kind. Now, that 
is really the, that's my compassionate response that I want to start with, is that self-kindness, you know, it isn't like I'll do it tomorrow. Let's start now. There is no way to kindness. Kindness is the way. That's really kind of the intention that I have. Your body needs kindness now. It doesn't need it next week. It needs it now. And though we may um, approach restrictive eating or a fad diet as an act of kindness, in your heart of hearts, does it really feel that way? Mm, now, such a good point. Such yeah. a good point. And, and a lot of people say, but I, I really need to work, you know, I really need to do this now. I go, you feel a sense of urgency. They go, I do. I've got diabetes, like migrant. I've got to do this now. I go, you're really worried. They're like, I am. I'm like, you want assurance that if you did something now, this would ta- be taken care of. I do. I want assurance. I go, okay, how could food possibly give you assurance about a tomorrow that hasn't come? Oh, so what do you know works? What do you know you can do right now? What do you know you can do when you leave this appointment? And that being present with our fear and our desires for assurance, which is human and normal, that is how we start the change process. That is how we really turn around and harness that desire effectively, not with that is such a beautiful point. And, you know, you just illustrated a way to kind of be a, a safe place for someone to experience the really normal and very, even most of the time, very rational fears people have about, you know, the facing the, the uncertainty of a diagnosis of diabetes. And I think another great point you made that I just want to highlight is this idea of asking yourself what works and you can go off of what other people say. You can go off of your own experience. or um, But just I would just encourage anyone listening to trust me and you, Migret, because we both have had experience with seeing that actually what we're, what we're promoting and talking about here actually works and works in terms of it creates more positive, healthier behaviors <laughs> than the mentality of like, no, I just got to do it right now. And I have to go on this crash diet. That's actually not as healthy long term. Right, right. And when we fail at this crash diet, which we will, because they don't last, um, or, or when we white knuckle our way through it, you know, we realize that we're sacrificing other things in our lives that probably have far more meaning, you know, whether it be walking the dog or being with our partner, you know, those are the kinds of things that really nourish our our being but we're sacrificing those to follow this very rigid plan and ironically Uh, we're not healthier for it right we're really not so you had kind of talked about how do we look at the change process and do it in a way that you know to trust us so I wrote a book called discover mindful eating for kids and it really was saying well how could parents teach kids about change And so I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And and I'd like to share with you kind of a way to approach the chain process. And it works for kids, but it works for adults. So the first one is discover. Don't, when you start a change process, just say, what can I discover about this thing that I'm dealing with? So we're dealing with diabetes. What could I discover about 
diabetes and how to change. Okay. So you might turn around and say, well, I discovered this mindful eating business. That's kind of interesting. Okay. It's stuck with you. Great. So the second step is to explore. Let's explore mindful eating. What would that mean? What would that look like? How would that look like for me? Who would I want to talk to? What questions would I want to ask? That's the exploring process. You're kind of digging in. So you're digging in a little bit. You're exploring. Okay. Next phase is play. How could I play with mindful eating? I might try it for breakfast. Maybe I'll try it for lunch. Maybe I'll try it as an appetizer. You know, I'm going to try it in lots of different ways. I'm going to play with it. Oh, well, I could make this really fun thing or I could do this really other thing. But play is joy. So really play with mindful eating. And once you've discovered it and you've explored it and you've played with it a while, you will naturally say, I am going to challenge myself to eat mindfully for breakfast or I'm going to challenge myself to, you know, be more mindful at lunch or I'm going to be more mindful about my meal planning or my shopping or, you know, what I eat after, you know, X time. So you then challenge yourself and you might say it's a gentle challenge and then you start the cycle over again. Oh, what did I discover from this challenge? What do I want to explore more? How could I play with this concept a little bit more? And then we naturally challenge ourselves. So discover, explore, play, challenge. Discover, explore, play, challenge. It's just a nice way to move through a change process. It's not heavy, um, very light and friendly. I like that. And I think that that, that can be uh, so relevant to so many different uh, people listening. And, and also one of the things that I wanted to mention is sometimes mindful eating, um, especially in context of maybe diabetes, for example, can kind of turn into another diet. I mean, we're really good in our society turning stuff into a diety approach where it's the right way to do it, the wrong way to do it, you're failing or you're succeeding, you know, very, we can get very rigid about this stuff. So will you just take a minute to provide some advice for how to avoid the pitfalls of turning mindfulness and mindful eating into yet another diet? Right, right. And so the the part, the diet voice and, and I appreciate you saying that, Paige, so thank you. The diet voice is the voice from outside. It's external information, and that can be people, but it's external. It's the they's, them, those people, I've been told. It's all outside. So whenever we have that external voice telling us how we should be, who we should be or what we should be, that is going to really fuel a restriction or a diet mindset. That's going to fuel diet culture. When the voice is internal, you know, what do I want? What do I need? What do I have? What are my desires? What feels good in my body? You know, what's my current experience? You know, you know, how can I be more compassionate to myself? That's internal information. And that actually fuels mindfulness, that fuels self-compassion, because we are becoming curious about ourselves, about our needs, about our wants, about our current experience. And that is really where change happens, is our curiosity about our own experience. Yeah, that's such a great point. So there are, there are infinite misconceptions about uh, 
diabetes. There are also infinite misconceptions, I think, about this sort of compassionate approach we're talking about. And you, you've you done such a great job of occupying this intersection uh, along with others who are who are trying to start this conversation or continue this conversation about how there is room for compassion and kindness and self-care uh, along with a, a condition like diabetes. What what would you like? What do you wish people knew? I guess uh, about that intersection. What do you? What misconceptions do you want to clear up? I know you said in the beginning you wanted to dive into that a little bit. So, so talk a little bit about that, and maybe I'll guide you through some questions. Okay, sure. So I think the first misconception is is that when we talk about diabetes, that people think it's a simple cause. So that's the first one. Diabetes type two diabetes. It's genetic. Um, and then there are conditions that occur that can make that genetic predisposition kind of manifest or unfold. So, you know, using myself as an example, there are people with diabetes in my family. It's a genetic link. So I genetically am at risk for developing diabetes. I know that. Now, it, that is part of it. Now, if I live long enough and certain conditions happen, that it's very likely that diabetes will present. So that's just what happens. But the reason why it presented wasn't because of my weight. It was because um, my insulin production decreased, my kidneys are reabsorbing glucose at a higher rate, you know, my muscles are not utilizing glucose, my liver is releasing glucose more at night, there are eight or 12 different core defects associated with type 2 diabetes. So this whole idea that it's just caused by what you weigh, it's erroneous. It's not accurate. And, and Dr. DeFranzo you know, really talks about the ominous octet, which really kind of helps us understand type 2 diabetes is a complex disease. And it does take time to understand it. And, it. and it's okay that we're confused because doctors are confused. Researchers are confused. So, you know, people who are listening that don't have a medical degree, hey, welcome to the club. We've been scratching our heads about this disease for decades. Um, so that's the first misconception is that I should know this or I, I should have prevented it. You know, that's the first place I'd like to say, well, you know, if, if you could have prevented it or you, you do understand it, you know, there's probably a Nobel Peace Prize for you for that in medicine. So, you know, that's the first one. One thing to add to that really quick is I think we can do better at trying to not blame ourselves when, when, we, it, when and if we get a diagnosis of diabetes. But also culturally, I would love to see a shift in how we treat each other um, and how we talk about this disease in general because there often so much of the fear of or the shame or the guilt about diabetes is associated with what will other people think because they'll all assume that um, I, I did something wrong. And so I think if, if the cultural conversation could shift, that would be incredible and I think really, really helpful. Right. And I think what you're talking about right now, Paige, is this concept of weight stigma, that being fat is bad. Um, and that there's a lot of negatives associated with our weight. And the reality is, is that type 2 di diabetes affects people of all shapes and sizes. And that this notion that living in a larger body made you bad or made you unhealthy, again, is part of the weight stigma 
that I would love to change around diabetes care. So I'm talking about weight stigma, but I'm also talking about, you know, someone in maybe a culturally accepted body who gets a diagnosis of diabetes. I've also seen that cause a lot of um, shame and, and guilt because people are, are nervous about the implications of getting that type 2 diabetes diagnosis, regardless right. of body size. Right, right. And so that's another, you know, layer, which is, again, just that blame and shame piece. Um, so I, I agree. I think that weight stigma, weight bias, all of those things are, they drive us to cope with food. And so it actually fuels disease because when we're judgmental towards ourselves, when people express that, you know, judgment or harsh criticism, criticism towards ourselves, uh, it also can fuel us seeking ways of coping. And, you know, that could be food, it could be alcohol, it could be, you know, binge watching Netflix. There's lots of ways that we cope that actually don't promote health. Very true. Okay, so what you were about to talk about another misconception. So um, I think the first one was we oversimplify diabetes. We deal with a society that has a lot of weight bias and weight stigma. And weight bias and weight stigma fuel coping. And typically it's alcohol and food are our primary methods of coping. And that we really need to work on identifying what are effective ways, non-harming ways that I could cope with a stressful life, with a stressful uh, situation. What could I do that won't harm me? And that's really an exploration of, you know, what would work. So I really need to discover what are my options and I need to explore those and I need to play with different things. So maybe it's a hobby, maybe it's exercise, maybe it's meditation, maybe it's, you know, drawing or art or singing, but there's lots of different ways that we can cope that don't create harm. And I feel like, restriction, going on a diet and trying to be good is how people cope. And in fact, it fuels uh, disease. So just kind of recognizing that people are like, well, I'm going to get healthy, I'm going to go on this diet. Or, you know, I'm really stressed out, so I'm going to go on this diet. And I I don't think that that's healthy. I think um, eating healthy is healthy. I think managing our stress is healthy. I think moving our body in joyful ways is healthy. I think uh, getting enough sleep is healthy. I think taking our medications as prescribed, that's healthy. Those are all healthy behaviors. But restriction and kind of putting ourselves in this very small box and telling ourselves, I can't eat this and I can't eat that and I can't have that and I can't have that and I shouldn't eat that and I'm not allowed that, that actually doesn't promote health. That creates disease and it's dis-ease as in, I don't feel my life is easy. Love that. Really good point. And such an important thing to try to kind of clear the air and talk about what these misconceptions are and maybe why we're, we're missing the mark in some of our traditional ways of approaching this stuff. Um, and, and again, there's so many parts of our medical system that are that are just tough it's there's not a, a lot of time and you're mentioning how it takes around 13 hours in session with you to really solidify a plan uh, doctors medical providers don't 
have anywhere near that amount of time. And so it does make sense that sometimes we boil this down and oversimplify and give advice that we think will be will be good advice, but maybe don't always understand how it how it sinks in for the person listening. So I'm hoping that this conversation is helpful for for people listening, whether you're on the, the patient side of things, or if you're on the provider side of things, just to understand like, there's some elements of how we talk about this that could be so much more effective and helpful and health promoting long term if we really talk to people about you know their whole selves and about this practice of of mindfulness ultimately and and compassion Mm, so well said so what else do you want to add i i'm always sensitive that you know conversations can feel a little um jumbled and I'm, i'm hoping i did an okay job today but tell me what what did we not cover that you want to make sure to talk about today Um, so I think the resources, there's a couple of different resources, if I can just touch base with those. Um, so I see patients, um, in a, a a closed network. So you have to be uh, a patient of the docs that I see. So it's not like people would call me up and say, Oh, Migrid, I'll have an appointment with me. If you, if you're in our network, you could, but it's not like I have a private practice. I work in a medical setting. Um, so really turn around saying, well, who would I see or how could I find an educator? I'd like to spend a little bit of time just to kind of guide you towards uh, kind of seeking uh, services so you can get the help you need. So you can get that diabetes plan in place and you can really feel that support. So that would be something that would have a lot of value if we could talk about that. So the first suggestion that I have is it's okay to work with somebody to figure out the diabetes. Give yourself permission to not know. It's a great point. <laughs> yeah. So I think that that's really, really helpful. So many times people say, well, I should know all about diabetes. Why? Why should you know about diabetes? I, I probably take like 45 or 50 hours of continuing education every single year to keep my brain up to date. It's a complex topic. Please don't feel like you should know this. It's hard stuff. So give yourself permission to not know. The second step I would say is give yourself permission to develop a reasonable plan. So don't grab, you know, something pre-printed and say, oh, this will be good enough. So give yourself permission to say, you know what? I Maybe I don't have time to deal with this right now, Doc. Um, you know, what could be two things I could do until I can go meet with, you know, uh, somebody and work out this plan. And, and I'm sure the doc would be able to provide you with something, you know, and there's some resources, uh, at, am I hungry? Uh, so you can click and go to, am I hungry? If you don't have a doc that can provide you with anything, there's a couple of resources on that website, which you can get, which I think are very helpful. Um, so when you have the time, you know, turn and say, okay, nobody plans to have diabetes. I get a busy life. You know, if somebody says to me, Oh, by the way, Migret, you have diabetes. I'd be like, okay, six weeks from now I can tackle this, but I need six weeks head, you know, before I can really address this, I might ask for what can I do in the interim to kind of get that space. But that six weeks comes and I really want to put together my team who is going to help me understand my diabetes. So there's lots of different people you could have on your team, dietitian, diabetes educator, life coach, 
uh, a trainer, if you're in that place where you can have access to a trainer, um, a therapist just to talk about things. There's lots of things that come up about diabetes. And of course, a doctor to, to help you with all of that. So recognize that everyone's going to kind of have their own little spiel and stick that they're going to be interested in. But you can work with lots of people, pharmacists. I, I work very closely with a pharmacist and she's terrific. She clears up a lot of misinformation about medications and, and really value her time. So you're going to have a team and, and that team, and, and this is a covered benefit if you have Medicare. So it's, it's part of the normal process. This is not something out of pocket. So if you're over 65 and you have Medicare, you get this as a covered benefit that you should access. And only 5% of people with Medicare access their benefits. So if you have commercial insurance, most of the time you even have twice as many benefits or three times as many benefits. So talk to your insurer and say, how can I get this covered? Because this is really important to me. When you seek services, really have your medical providers really talk to you and share your values. So if your medical provider is telling you to do X and you think, well, I don't value X or that isn't, you know, how I want to approach this, find somebody who will work with you. For myself, uh, working, I am a health at every size dietitian, diabetes educator. I value that um, position. Uh, so if you go to health at every size, you can find uh, practitioners that do that. Um, so find a dietitian, a diabetes educator. If you say, I don't want to diet anymore, I'm done with diet culture, find somebody that supports that message. Um, I think really craft your support network. These, this is the people that are going to, they're going to keep you going when it's hard. Get that team on board and don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, and I love that you explained so eloquently the idea of, of, Sometimes you just need to try to get, give yourself the chance to try to learn what diabetes even is, because there's absolutely <laughs> and and I think you can't discount discount that because understanding what's going on in your body can also be helpful for you to understand what you need to do to care for it. Absolutely, I know it's helped me a lot, and it really helps me be compassionate as I understand like oh my gosh, my poor body, think about what it's trying to do. Of course I want to be nice to it because yeah. it's the only one I have and that poor body is trying to do all this work with a really dull knife. That would frustrate the bejeebas out of me <laughs> if I had to digest and utilize all this food with a dull knife. Not to mention that it's not particularly a big knife either. So... You know, as we create empathy for our body, you know, it's really important. But supports are so important. Support groups, you know, podcasts like this, uh, but really getting those supports in place so you can turn on saying, I don't have to change my body to care for my body. My body, as it is right now, deserves care and kindness. Such an important point. Love that. How can people listening keep in touch with you or follow your work? So megrit.com is my website, and that's just my first name. And then if you're a professional, because my I, I work with clients, you know, through my day job. Um, but if you're a professional, um, I have more resources for professionals um, at megrit.com. 
I did write a book with Dr. Michelle May called Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat with Diabetes. And that's available at Amazon or in your local bookstore. It's a comprehensive approach to diabetes care using a mindfulness-based model. And Dr. Michelle May has a great website called amihungry.com. Great, such important work. Thank you for sharing all of that. And thank you again so much for spending so much of your day with me today. This has been such a great conversation and I really appreciate your time. Well, I sincerely hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you haven't already, please go ahead and leave a review on iTunes. Thanks again so much for listening and we'll see you soon for another episode.